Let's pray together. Lord, we make that prayer our song. We make that song our prayer. And we ask you to have mercy on us. Mercy because our hearts are so hardened at times. And we are so blind at times. And we need to see. And we know that we are works in progress. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercy and your help. I pray that you'd make us a holy and a humble people who love you and who love your word and who are willing to stand before the glory and be transformed. So, Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. A long time ago, there was a king in Judah. His name was Jehoshaphat. He paid a visit to Ahab, who was the king in Israel. Jehoshaphat loved God and walked in his ways. Ahab definitively did not love God or walk in his ways. Nevertheless, Jehoshaphat pays this visit to evil Ahab, and Ahab convinces Jehoshaphat to go to war with him against the Aramaeans. After agreeing to this, Jehoshaphat makes one request of Ahab. He says, please inquire first for the word of the Lord, which is what any pious, godly leader would do call in the prophets to see if God would have something to say about such a momentous decision as going to war. Ahab says, sure, no problem. I've got 400 prophets. And so they go and get the 400 prophets, and Ahab asks them, shall I go up against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they all say, yes, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And as you're reading this, you get the sense that these guys, these prophets, are all falling all over themselves to say nice things to the king. They're just a bunch of sycophants looking to say what pleases the king rather than what pleases the Lord. Jehoshaphat, the good king, he picks up on this, and he's just not buying what they're saying. And he says, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And Ahab says, well, there's this one guy, Micaiah, the son of Imla. But I don't like talking to him because he never says anything nice about me. So Jehoshaphat says, well, that's our guy. Bring him in. And so they bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, before the two kings. And Micaiah says to Ahab, yeah, sure, go. You'll be fine. Just go on out to battle. Everything will go well for you. And his tone must have been dripping with sarcasm, because Ahab gets it. He's like, okay, stop yanking my chain. Tell us what the real deal is. And so Micaiah tells them the word from the Lord, and he says this. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Meaning, if y'all go fight, y'all going to lose. 
You're going to get beat, and it's best just to send your men home right now before they get decimated by the Arameans. And here's where things get really interesting. Ahab hears this word from the Lord. Jehoshaphat hears this word from the Lord, and they ignore it. They go on out to the battle anyway, and guess what happens? Just what God said would happen, happens. The combined forces of Israel and Judah are decimated and scattered. Jehoshaphat makes a really close escape. Ahab gets killed by the Arameans. You get to the end of this, and you ask yourself a question. Why, why do the armies of Israel get destroyed? Why does Ahab die? Why does Jehoshaphat scurry back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs? Is it because Ahab didn't have the word of the Lord? That's not why. They had the word from the Lord. What they didn't have was the heart to receive it. Ahab was blinded to the word because he didn't want to see the word. And so he perished. Have you ever noticed this tendency play out in your own heart? You know what the word of the Lord says. You've read it. Maybe your parents taught it to you. You've heard it preached. And yet you still miss some things. Maybe some things that you knew were there, but that you just didn't want to think about because they were too meddlesome in your life and in your habits. And there can be a temptation to turn your face from the word because you don't want to see the word and your blindness to the word results from your hard-heartedness to the word. What I'm describing here, what we see with Ahab, is the human condition. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 1 when he says that sinners by nature suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's what the Lord says in Isaiah 29. In verse 10 where it says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Hard-heartedness due to sin can become blindness and deafness to God's conspicuous revelation of himself to us. And so the word of the Lord is hidden from many people. Do you know what it's like to have the word of the Lord hiding from you in plain sight? In many ways, that's how Paul's describing the situation when it comes to the gospel and sinners in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 12 to 18. If you're not already there, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 12 to 18. In my last message, which was on the first 11 verses of this chapter, we saw Paul extol the glory of the new covenant. His readers, they apparently wanted a letter of recommendation uh, from him so that they would accept his ministry. And Paul says that he doesn't need a letter because their conversion to Christ through the Spirit is all the letter that he's ever going to need. And the new covenant ministry that he's giving them through the Spirit leads to life, while the dead ministry 
The dead letter ministry of the law is a ministry of death. And so for that reason, the new covenant ministry of the Spirit far excels the glory of anything that came before. Paul says, you're my letter, and this letter is far better. It's based on the new covenant. And so Paul is talking about the glory of the new covenant, and he's continuing this theme of the glory of the new covenant before us in the verses today. And the theme is forcing a question. And the question is this. It's the title of the sermon. Who can see the glory of the new covenant? Who can see this revelation coming to us from God in the new covenant? Paul's going to answer this question in three steps. Here they are. We're going to see the veiling of his glory in verses 12 to 13. The hardening against glory in verses 14 to 15. And then the conversion to glory in verses 16 to 18. So it's the veiling of glory, the hardening against glory, and the conversion to glory. So the first thing is the veiling of glory. Everybody look at verse 12. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Keep in mind, once again, Paul continues with that figure of speech that I've told you about all these previous weeks. He's using that figure of speech called the apostolic we, in which Paul uses the first person plural pronouns to refer to himself. So when he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, he means since I have such a hope, I am very bold. So notice the basis for Paul's boldness. It's hope. What hope is he referring to? Well, you have to look back at the end, to the end of verse 11 to know what hope he's referring to. Verse 11 talks about a glory that comes to us, that comes to believers, that is permanent. It's a glory that remains. It's a glory that doesn't fade, which means that it endures unto eternity, which means the inheritance that all believers look forward to is what we see patterned in Jesus. After Jesus died, he was raised physically from the dead. He was taken up in glory. And he is now alive forever in an uncorrupted body. And we are going to be in the same way. That is our hope. It's a hope that, that, that doesn't end. So it's truly an eternal hope that we receive through the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. Paul says that because of that hope, he doesn't ever have to be ashamed. He could speak with boldness. Now, a couple of words here about Paul's word, the, the words you see in your translation, boldness. It's, it's not wrong. I think it does leave a little bit to be desired because the word that's translated boldness uh, can mean boldness in certain contexts, but I, I don't think that's the accent here. The word can also mean uh, something like this. It's a use of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. So the idea is not so much one of courage or bravery, what you kind of associate with the idea of boldness. Um, it, the, the idea is one of outspokenness, frankness, plainness, something being uncovered. In other words, Paul means to contrast, he means a contrast between himself and the ministry of Moses. Moses, when he ministered, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus in particular, he would go before the Lord, receive the word of the Lord, and he comes out to speak to the people, and then what does he do? He covers himself. It's, it's not open. It, it, it's covered in a sense. Paul's saying I, he doesn't do that in his ministry. His face, and thus his message, is proclaimed in the open and with no concealment, no veiling. So he says in verse 13, 
He says, we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Paul's straightforwardness has been called into question by the Corinthians. We've already seen that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. We saw how Paul was defending himself against this criticism of being less than straightforward with them. And you, you remember Paul says that I didn't preach to you anything except what I've come to see and understand. And so they've questioned him about this and he's addressed it. But now he's circling back around again and he's saying, I'm not like Moses. Moses put a veil over his face to conceal God's glory. But I'm not doing that. I speak openly with you. That's what he means by this word that's translated boldness. It's uncovered, laid bare, conspicuous. And of course, Paul is making a contrast directly with what uh, we read in Exodus chapter 33 in verse, uh, chapters 33 and chapter 34, that famous passage where Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. And God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and and live. And so God says that he's going to make a way for Moses to get sort of an indirect view of the Lord. I don't know what it was, but it's, it's interesting because within the space of one chapter, chapter 33, it says Moses speaks to the Lord face to face. And we have to add an as it were, because it's not totally direct, because if it were, it would incinerate him. It would vaporize him. And so he says, can I see the Lord? Can I see your glory? The Lord says, yes, I'll see your glory. I'll let you see my glory when he he, when I pass by, but it'll be kind of an indirect look. And so the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and protects him from being vaporized by the Lord's presence as he passes by. And right after Moses sees this glory, God writes the Ten Commandments again. He rewrites them after the broken tablets, puts them on stone tablets again. And the Lord says that with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so here's the... When Paul is looking back at this story, he's, what he sees is that Moses receives the covenant and he's receiving it, receiving it with glory. He sees God's glory and he receives this covenant with glory. And when he comes down from the mountain, guess what's beaming from his face? Glory. But when Moses comes down from Sinai back to the people... Moses doesn't realize that his face is shining as a result of having been in the presence of the Lord. There's some sort of a supernatural glory beaming from his face. And it terrifies Aaron and all the people so that they're afraid to come near to them. Moses has to call them back and say, come listen. But Moses makes use of a veil so that Israel won't recoil in horror from his appearance. He covers the glory that's beaming from his face. And he puts this, this veil on. And so from then on out, Moses would wear this veil whenever he was in the presence of the people. But he would take off the veil whenever he was standing before the Lord and then when he was speaking to the people. So when he's standing before the Lord, no veil. When he's speaking to the people, no veil. But when he's just not doing those two things, he's got this veil on. He would address God and the people with his face uncovered. And it was terrifying to the people when they saw him with his face uncovered, with this glory beaming. But notice what Paul says about all this in verse 13. He says, we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. There's a mouthful there. 
Um, Putting the veil over his face prevented the Israelites from seeing the glory. In particular, it kept them from seeing, notice what it says, the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We need to unpack that last phrase because it's the key. The thing that's being brought to an end is the glory that was beaming from Moses' face. We already know from um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7 that the glory on Moses' face is a fading glory. It says, The sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face, fading as it was. So it was a fading glory, a temporary glory. Moses' face didn't stay lit up. Whatever it was, it didn't stay that way. His usual appearance would eventually return. But when he would go into the presence of the Lord, the glory was was shining again. But eventually it would return. But before that, he's covering his face with, with the result that something is being concealed from the people every time. What's being concealed? Well, it's not the fading glory per se that's being concealed. Every time he spoke to them, he had the veil off. They could see the fading glory. Okay? What was being concealed? Well, it says here it's the outcome of the fading glory that's being concealed. That word translated as as outcome is this Greek word telos. It's where we get our word teleology from, if some of you are familiar with that. It can be used sometimes to refer to outcome but, but what's most likely the case here is that Paul's using it to mean something like goal. In fact, that's the way that Paul uses it in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, where Paul proclaims that Christ is the end or the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this word that you see in Romans 10, 4, also right here, 2 Corinthians 3, it means goal when it's used in connection with the law. And I think that's what Paul means here. This fading glory on Moses' face is a symbol for the law. And Paul is therefore saying in verse 13, Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the goal of this fading glory of the law. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the goal of the law. Now this text is saying the veil kept them from seeing that goal. They were therefore prevented from seeing the true point of it all. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. The point is simply this. This veil prevents the sons of Israel from seeing the fading glory and for that reason prevents them from seeing Christ. Because Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now they've got this veil that's presenting them from seeing the goal of the law. You know what that tells us? It tells us two things. It tells us that the law of Moses reveals Christ. It also tells us that the revelation of Christ in the law is concealed from some people. The revelation is there, but it's hiding in plain sight from some people. How many of you remember Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5? Things are getting a little dicey at this point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus and the religious leaders are beginning to butt heads because Jesus is out in the open teaching and saying things like this. My father is working until now and I myself am working. He says in John 5, 17. And these Jewish leaders knew exactly what the implications were of such a statement. By calling God his father, they knew he was making himself out to be equal with God. And so in John 5, 5, 18, it says, 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This angered them so much that they wanted to to destroy him. They're seeing the glory, but they fear it. They want to kill it. But this doesn't stop Jesus. He doubles down with even more evidence that God is his father, that he's equal with God, until finally he finishes with this. This is John chapter 5 and verses 39 to 47. Notice what Jesus says about the scriptures and glory. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe me when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now here Jesus is facing a group of people who spent their lives devoted to the law of Moses. They're scholars of the law of Moses. They had thought long and hard about the law of Moses. And yet Jesus says to them, you don't understand the law of Moses. I am the goal at which Moses is pointing and you don't see me. And you can't see it because you don't want to see it. You don't see it because you'd rather have your own glory than God's glory. If you're looking at the Old Testament and you aren't seeing Jesus, then you are reading it wrong. And yet there are some Bible scholars and even some theologians who will take it as a matter of principle that the Old Testament has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a book for the Jews with promises for the Jews and commands for the Jews, blessings for the Jews, but not much to do with us. Because it's not much to do with Jesus. For them, the law of Moses and indeed the whole Old Testament are kind kind of like God's plan A. And then Jesus and the church are kind of like God's unplanned plan B. That's just the wrong way to read this. That's not the way the apostles are reading this. That's not the way Paul's talking about the law of Moses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not the way Jesus addressed these people about the glory that's in the scriptures for those with eyes to see. Jesus says that if you understand Moses correctly, you will see that it's all about him. Jesus is the goal of the law for everyone who believes. Jesus says that Moses wrote about him. That means that when you see Moses writing about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent in Genesis 3... You know, that's about Jesus. When you read Moses writing that Judah is a lion's cub, you know that's about Jesus. When you see Moses saying that the scepter will not depart from Judah, you know that's about King Jesus. 
And when you see Moses writing about God's covenant with Abraham, saying, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, you know that's ultimately about Jesus. When you see Moses recording Balaam's prophecy in the book of Numbers, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. When you read that, you know that's about Jesus. And these Jewish leaders that Jesus had conflicts with, and now these Jewish people that Paul are talking about, who have a veil over their eyes, they're reading that same law, but they're not seeing Jesus. To read the Old Testament and to miss Jesus is to miss the Old Testament because it is all about him. The only ones who read the Old Testament and fail to see Jesus are the ones who are like the unbelieving Jews who are reading with a veil over their eyes. And they can't see what they ought to see or hear what they ought to hear. And so the question that everybody has to ask when they open the Old Testament, when they open both Testaments, are you seeing Jesus? Are you seeing Jesus as he's standing forth in the scriptures and are you receiving Jesus? Or are you trying to kick against the revelation? Is he hiding in plain sight from you when you look at the revelation? Because the issue for everybody that's within the sound of my voice is not a lack of revelation. The issue is, is are you seeing what's there? Well, Paul talks about in verses 12 through 13, the veiling of the glory. But secondly, he talks about the hardening against glory. If you can't see what you ought to see, why is it? Well, he explains it right here. Because there's a hardening against glory. Look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Whose minds were hardened? These, um, uh, the Jews who had this veil between them and the glory. Their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, who's they? Now it's my, he's, he's bringing it up today. He's talking about Mo, the Jews in Moses' day. Now he's, Paul's talking about the Jews in his own day. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. These words are confirming that the blindness of the Jews, unbelieving Jews, was not a physical blindness, but a moral blindness. For it says that their minds were hardened. hardened. And that word... Harden is a word that means to cause something to have difficulty and cause someone to have difficulty in understanding or in comprehending. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 12 and verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. They couldn't believe. Why? Their hearts are hardened. They can't see what they ought to see. They're blinded. So they don't understand. They don't get it. It's the word Paul uses of the Jews in Romans chapter 11 and verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. There were some chosen from, it, from within Israel who obtained the outcome of the promise, but the rest of them were hardened. They could not see what the whole thing was about. They didn't see Christ as the goal of the law for everyone who believes. And so it says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
And so here in, in 2 Corinthians 3.14, this word hardened means that the minds and the hearts of unbelieving Jews are unable to understand or comprehend God's revelation in Christ. And the presence of the veil that he's talking about is closely associated with this hardening. Notice he says, verse 14, their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Notice Paul's bringing back that image of Moses' veiled face. Moses only takes the veil off when he speaks with God and to speak to the people. So when Moses' veil comes off, what's happening in, in Exodus 34? When the veil comes off, the people see glory and they hear God's word. That's what happened when the veil, happened when the veil was removed. They see glory and they hear God's word. When the veil is on Moses' face, they don't see God's glory and they don't hear God's word. So the veil is an instrument that blinds. In that sense, it's kind of an instrument of, of it's a type of an instrument of judgment. It's a barrier between God's people and God's revelation. And Paul says that the only way for this barrier to be removed is for Christ to take it away. The veil is removed in Christ. But that word translated as take away is actually stronger than that. It's a word that means to abolish or to wipe out. So the veil, when Jesus removes the veil, it's different than when Moses removed the veil. Moses was in and out of the tent of meaning, of the tent of meaning which, he, that, which means that veil was, take, was put on and taken off. It was off and on, off and on. You know, Jesus, Jesus, when he takes away the veil, he destroys it. It's not going to go back again anymore. Once the veil is taken away from your face in this way, it's always removed. So obviously Paul's not talking about the, liter you know, the same literal physical veil that, that Moses wore. He's talking about the ve a veil that links with the hardening of the heart. He's talking about a moral blindness that conceals from unbelievers the glory of God revealed in the gospel. The veil remains on unbelievers and keeps people, in this context, the Jews in particular, it keeps them in the dark about the true meaning of God's revelation in the Old Testament. So verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They can't see what they ought to see. They can't hear what they ought to hear. It's a moral blindness covering the hearts of unbelieving Jews. And that willfulness that keeps them in the dark still remains. And guess what? It's not just true of unbelieving Jews. It's true of anyone, Jew or Gentile, apart from grace and apart from the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. Unless and until the Spirit moves, the heart and the mind stay veiled. That It stays steeped in spiritual blindness and people can't see because they won't see you remember the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 right after Jesus performs this stunning miracle this sign of you know feeding the 5,000 people from the five loaves and two fish right after this stunning sign he begins to preach to the multitude and as their bellies have been filled with the food he provided for them, he warns them, do not work for the food that spoils, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. 
And this multitude that's been fed by Jesus, they don't have any clue what he's talking about. And they say to him, well, what are we supposed to do that we may work the works of God? And we saw you make bread. Well, if you're, you know, tell us how to make the bread. We won't ask you to do it. Jesus says, well, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But they really still don't understand what he's talking about. They actually really don't care what he's talking about. They just want more food. And so they say, okay, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, that's the word. Okay, we'll believe in you. How about performing another sign so that we can see and believe? You know, Jesus, we remember a guy named Moses. Moses used to perform signs, and people believed in him. You want us to believe in you? Do a sign like Moses did. In fact, Moses did this one sign where he made bread come out of heaven. Why don't you give us some more food? Then we'll believe in you. And of course, the whole exchange just reveals that they don't really want Jesus. They just want more food. They're coming to him because they ate of the loaves and their bellies were filled. Jesus wants to give them the bread that endures to eternal life himself, but they can't even see that that's what he's offering to them. They want bread. He says, I am the bread. They don't get it. So finally, he just says it outright. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And it becomes clear that the people were happy to follow him when he was doling out the food. But when he stopped doling out the food and started doling out the word of God, they got less and less interested. In fact, they got more and more angry. And some of them couldn't take it anymore. And it says that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and they were not walking with him anymore. They, they deserted Jesus. When the food stopped and the word started, they were done. What was the problem here? The problem was their hearts were hardened. They wanted bread, but were too blind to see that the bread that gives eternal life was standing right there before them. They couldn't see that the true bread that comes down out of heaven was right there offering himself to them. And they couldn't see it because they didn't want to see it. They wanted something else. And as long as they wanted that something else, they were blind. They were veiled. And they couldn't see Jesus for who he is. And the bread for them is hiding in plain sight. The problem with the Jews in John 6 and the problem that Paul still currently afflicts the Jews in his own time are not uniquely Jewish problems. They are human problems. It's our problem. God has revealed himself to the world through Christ and the world doesn't want him. So when they open their Bibles or have someone preach the gospel to them, the glory is concealed from them. You ever wonder why you believed in the gospel and your neighbor didn't? You both heard the gospel. You responded. They didn't. It's not because you were just more spiritually sensitive or just a little more in tune with things. That's, that wasn't the difference. You would have been pawing around in the dark too, indefinitely. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ had to break through to you by, by grace. But otherwise, it's, everyone is under this same universal problem. They can't see what they ought to see. The world doesn't want Christ. And so when they open their Bibles or they have someone preach the gospel to them, the glory is concealed from them, and they don't 
see Jesus there even though he's there. And so it's like there's a veil lying over the hearts and minds so that they can't see what they ought to see. Jesus is hiding in plain sight. And here's the irony. They can't see because they don't want to see. You remember that moment in the Chronicles of Narnia when there's only one of the Pevensey children who can see Aslan? They're you know, walking through the forest and, she, and Lucy keeps seeing him. What was the difference between Lucy and all the rest? Because of all the others, she wanted him the most. She loved him. Her heart was wide open to him. And so she saw him. If you aren't seeing Jesus like you need to see Jesus, might it be because you don't want him, but you want some other thing more than him? Could it be because there is some other thing or person or goal that you would rather have than him? This is why the call of the gospel comes with a demand for repentance. If you want to see Jesus, you will have to turn from all those other things. If you want to see Jesus, you will have to want him above all else. Anything less than that is a sign that your mind and your heart still veiled, still hardened. So Paul talks about the veiling of the glory, the hardening against glory, and then finally in verse 16, the conversion to glory. Look at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There's some question among uh, commentators about who exactly is turning to the Lord in verse 16. The subject of the verb in the original is um, not explicit. It's sort of implied in the verb. And so all the verb is indicating is that we've got some sort of a singular subject there. But who is it referring to? The ESV, if you're reading that, it, it, it renders it kind of generically as if it were just, you know, anyone who happens to turn to the Lord. I think it's, that's a true statement. It would apply to anyone. But I think it misunderstands probably what Paul is saying here. The most natural subject would be the singular person mentioned in the previous verse, and that person is, is Moses. And I think we can confirm that interpretation if we recognize that verse 16 is a loose paraphrase of Exodus chapter 34 and verse 34, which says, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. So in Exodus, it's Moses that wears the veil, and it's Moses that has the veil removed once he enters into God's presence. So that there's no barrier between God and Moses. As much as a sinful human being can, Moses has this full-on view of the glory of the Lord. And think about what this means. It means that whenever Moses turns to the Lord, obviously his veil is removed. Now Paul is saying, I think likewise, whenever anyone turns to the Lord to see the full-on revelation, the veil is removed. So Moses is a kind of type of the Christian convert. When you turn to the Lord, hands empty, heart wide open, you will see what you weren't able to see behind that veil. You will see the very glory of God. You won't see a dead Jew, bones decaying in some unmarked grave in Palestine. You will see the risen Christ glorified in all of his splendor. 
And it's extraordinary that, that Paul speaks this way because he's saying that Paul, uh, that, that Moses is a type of what our experience is. Moses went into the tent of meeting and saw the glory of the Lord with the veil removed. Paul is saying whenever we're like Moses, when he turned to the Lord, the veil is taken away and he sees the glory. We see the glory whenever we turn to him. And that brings us to verse 17, which is just extraordinary because verse 17 is Paul's explanation of verse 16, which means this is Paul's explanation of Exodus 34, 34. What was Moses looking at when he turned to the Lord in Exodus 34, 34? Paul says, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul normally uses this word Lord, kurios, to refer to Jesus. That's not the case in this verse. We know that because this entire paragraph has been a commentary on Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, the Lord, Kyrios, appears repeatedly to refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so in verse 17, Paul means to clarify that what Moses was seeing when the veil was taken away is that he's looking at the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. In other words, God is the Spirit. So this is more than just saying that the Holy Spirit is God. It is saying that. It's more than just saying that the Holy Spirit is God. That's true. This is also saying that in some sense, the very Holy Spirit that is poured out in the new covenant was there with Moses on the mountain and in the tent of meeting. God, the Holy Spirit, presided over the old covenant with Moses, and now he's being poured out in the new covenant upon God's people. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Well, just as Moses was freed from the barrier of the veil, so also God's people are freed from the barrier of the veil that keeps them blinded to the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So here's the question. Who can see the glory of God? Who can see the glory of the new covenant? Only those people who have been transformed by the Spirit of God. Until the Spirit shows up, the sinner stays in bondage. But when the Spirit of the Lord shows up, there's liberty, freedom, finally to see what you ought to see and thereby to be what you ought to be. And there's one more verse in this paragraph. And my plan is to do more, no more than to read it today because I'm planning a whole sermon on one verse. Uh, verse 18, the next time. He says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul talks about the veiling of the glory. He talks about the sinner's hardening against the glory. But he finishes with this word about the sinner's conversion to glory. And do you know what brings this conversion about? It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit that was there, that was the Lord, when the law was given to Moses, is the Spirit that's poured out in the new covenant. 
It's the spirit that makes the word of God effective in your heart. It's the spirit that's going to make this sermon effective if it's going to be any, have any good effect at all. It's the spirit of God working through the word of God to the people of God. That's what this is about. And the only people can, who can see it are those who have been awakened by the Spirit. If you're here this morning, and you can detect in your own heart, you know, I haven't been awakened by the Spirit. I, 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 I do feel like there's a veil over my eyes. I haven't wanted Jesus more than anything. If you detect that, that may very well be the evidence of the Spirit working in your heart right now. The Spirit saying to you, this is what you need. And the Spirit saying to you, turn from the foolishness and turn to the glory. Come and see what has been hiding in plain sight all of this time. See Aslan moving in the forest. Invisible to many people, but there all along. The Bible says that every single person is a sinner. That includes me. That includes you. And God's only provision for this is his son Jesus, whom he sent to die on a cross and take the penalty for our sins. And then God raised him up after three days and offers to us eternal life. We can't receive this grace because of anything we've done. We can only receive it by believing. If you haven't believed that, you need to believe that today. Kids, if you haven't believed this, you need to believe this today. This isn't just for your mom and dad. This is for you. You need to believe in Jesus and understand that he is the most important thing in this world. All of us need to be transformed by the vision of the Lord that is set before us in the new covenant. The Lord is doing that work among his people. And we're going to pray that he'll continue it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those who are here who don't know you, that they would turn to you and be saved. I pray for those who are here who do know you, that they would stay facing you and that they would be transformed. Father, we ask for you to do your work through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.